All right. Thank you, Steve. Good morning to you. All right. Happy fall. Did you see the 50s this morning? Ah, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for those three weeks of cool weather. Well, if you're new, my name is Steve. Welcome to Citadel Square. You picked a great Sunday to join us. We are a little more than halfway through our, our mini-series in the book of Luke on discipleship. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it? And we will be in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, we're going to be in verses 28 to 36. Uh, briefly, where we've been the past three weeks, I think you've been feeling the rising tension in conflict as Jesus has introduced us to the reality of his coming rejection, uh, suffering, crucifixion, burial, death, and resurrection. And um, it has sat on the disciples, I think, in a very interesting way. Uh, Jesus has introduced that idea two weeks ago as he's talked about uh, the certainty of what will happen to him in Jerusalem. Then he showed us last week the certainty of what's going to happen for all of us who choose to take up our cross and come after Jesus. So we've been introduced in these past two weeks really confronted with the fact that death is inevitable for Jesus. And for anybody who wants to follow Christ, we are facing uh, a severing of perhaps the most significant voices in our entire life. Uh, our voice that seeks to preserve our life and the voices in the world that seeks to take uh, really priority in the ways that we make decisions. Well, Luke has not yet uh, finished hammering this nail. He's going to take this nail and he's going to drive it again in what in another scene that is that is um, recorded in all three synoptic gospels. It's the scene of the transfiguration. Uh, you'll see that there in Luke 9 if you've turned there already. Uh, but in Luke chapter 9 what we've found uh, as I said is this rising tension over the identity of Jesus. You've, you've noticed that in um, what Jesus has asked the disciples about what the crowds were saying about him. And they had said, well, it's John the Baptist res uh, resurrected, it's Elijah, it's one of the prophets, and then Herod is confused as well, and we heard uh, on the lips of Peter his confession that Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus himself sharing with the disciples about his own identity as the Son of Man and what's going to happen to him, and that contrast between glory and death. Glory and the, uh, the certainty of his coming crucifixion. Well, we're going to look at that again here in the transfiguration. And this is an important moment in the development of Jesus' training of the disciples. I don't know if you've ever thought of going to the transfiguration as being an important part of your own discipleship. Uh, I, I read this passage and you go, well, this is never going to happen to me. This only happens to three of the 12 disciples. It happens one time in Jesus' entire ministry. It seems a pretty unique and subjective experience. But the reason it's here is actually very, very important for our spiritual lives. Uh, from time to time in, in all of our spiritual lives, I think we face a conflict between what we see and what we hear in God's word. You ever been there? You ever like get to a Thursday and look at your life and go, what is God doing? I, I didn't make any of the lights on the way to work and now I've got this meeting I've got to go into and there's this person that I've got to talk to and there's this situation in my life and there's this spiritual reality in my heart that I can't kind of, un, you know, pull the roots up and God isn't doing anything in my life. You ever have those? You have those kind of like, we have, I think we all face the temptation to evaluate the temporal momentary events of our life kind of holistically. 
and we take one little story, one little snippet out of the things that we see and perceive, and we make it the absolute authoritative truth. You ever do that? And we fight as Christians to come back to God's word and to remember, no, 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 remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead as preached in my gospel, right? We, we come back to kind of wash our souls again in the word of God and what God has promised and where we are headed and the certainty of his resurrection and the fact that he actually has broken the power of sin in our lives and the need of the spirit and the drawing near to worship him through his word. And we have to consistently wash our mental experiences and really our, our spiritual perspective with the word of God. And that's really the tension in this passage. The tension in this passage is all about what you see and what you hear. And that could not be a greater, more important reality in the life of the Christians. Amen? That we are consistently faced with having to not walk by sight, but walk by, walk by faith. Which means a lot of times we go through situations in life where we have to close our eyes and remember what is true. Because if we leave them open and close our ears, we're really in trouble with evaluating our life. So this is a very uh, important text for us as we understand discipleship. Because Jesus is getting these disciples ready to take on the ministry after he's gone. And this could not, he could not hand off the ministry without them seeing and experiencing what they do here. All right, so let's pray, and we'll uh, get into this together. Father, for these few minutes, as we look into your word, uh, for the people in this room, for myself, who face the temptation to evaluate things basically on my own perspective, on the things that I can see and I can understand and I can make sense of, Father, we need your divine initiative and your divine perspective through your word. We acknowledge the ways that we are uh, prone to believe lies. We're prone to see and apply your word in, in uh, wrong ways. And we confess in humility the need for you to speak and for you to give light. And uh, as the Psalms promise us that the unfolding of your word gives light. So I would pray that here this morning as we look into your word that what you have to say here would be clear and plain to our hearts. That we would lay hold of it again in faith trusting that uh, you are good and you have sent Christ to die on the cross for our sins, and that's your purpose, and uh, the gospel is your idea. So as we meditate on these things and the glory of Christ and what these disciples see of Jesus in this passage, we pray that our hearts would be warmed, that our worship would rise, and that we would again confess the goodness of Jesus Christ as crucified on the cross for sinners. So give us grace and uh, focus our attention and our affections on you. In Christ's name, amen. All right, well, look with me here at Luke 9, verse 28. You see how Luke starts there, about eight days after these sayings. Now, let's summarize what has been said, really, from verse 18 all the way up to verse 27. Everything that Jesus has been saying from verse 18 up to 27 has had to do with his identity and the certainty of his future crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. It's been the confrontation in the minds of the disciples. It's been the confrontation in the confusion of what's been happening in the crowds and with Herod himself. And while the disciples are trying to develop their understanding of a holistic picture of Christ, I think we could all agree that since none of us like to forecast and plan for suffering, that it's difficult for us to work suffering into our plan of our own personal development and even for the disciples to understand suffering in the... In the um, in their understanding of Jesus and his experience. But we're just a week later from these conversations of take up your cross and follow me, 
where this event happened. So fresh in the minds of the disciples is the confession that Jesus said to take up your cross because crucifixion is coming. Now in this moment, after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James. You'll notice he doesn't take the whole group. It's just a contingent. It's just three individuals who were with Jesus most recently in the book of Luke when he raised the little girl from the dead. So they've seen Jesus do a miracle of great importance. They'll be on the mountain here with Jesus, and we're told later that in the Garden of Gethsemane, these three will be there as well. So they're with Jesus during uh, incredibly important moments in Jesus' ministry career. This one is no different. Jesus decides to go up onto a mountain to do something that he's done really consistently throughout the book of Luke. Luke has a particular emphasis on prayer. And when it comes to prayer in Jesus' ministry, prayer is always accompanied with divine revelation. We always learn something when Jesus is praying. You remember how Jesus begins his ministry praying and he's in the water being baptized by John the Baptist. And there is the first time we hear a voice from heaven. We'll hear it for the second time here. When Jesus rises uh, the next morning from healing people all through the night, he goes out early to pray and the disciples come find him. He says, I must go to the other villages as well to preach the kingdom of God for that is why I've came. And we learn that in Jesus, when he decides to pray, he renews his commitment and his focus on the reasons and the priority for why he's come. Even most recently in Luke We saw Jesus praying and Jesus rises from prayer and confronts the disciples with a question. Remember that back in verse 18 or so. He says, who do the crowd say that I am? So it's through prayer that we, the reader of the book of Luke, gain greater and greater understanding as Jesus unveils and discloses his identity to us. This moment is no different. It's a very unique moment, though, because Jesus doesn't ask for anything to happen. He doesn't seem to pray for the disciples to have insight. It's something that God, of his own initiative, chooses to do for the disciples. So we're prepared, as verse 28 starts, for some kind of disclosure, some kind of significant reality to be disclosed to us about Jesus and who he is, because it always happens during prayer. So look with me at verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. You probably couldn't get a a greater understatement than that, Luke. I mean, I know Luke's a data guy, and he doesn't have, like, great swells of ups and downs in his emotions. But Luke basically just says his face looked different. Literally, the appearance looks heteros, different from the way he usually looks, which, as you'll see in this scene, is... Kind of funny. Not only is his face altered, his clothing became dazzling white. Literally, the Greek says his clothes were like lightning. So if you, if you think about how Jesus is portrayed throughout the scriptures, you probably have a Revelation 1 kind of Jesus here that Peter, James, and John see. A visible revelation of Jesus as he actually is. And as I said, Jesus doesn't seem to ask for it. The disciples don't seem to ask for it. The disciples, as we'll see in a moment, aren't that sensitive. But Jesus in this moment is unveiled. God chooses to show us something about Jesus and who he is. Well, Jesus isn't alone. Look at verse 30. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Now, commentators kind of go back and forth on why these two, but it's probably that Moses and Elijah represent the two greatest, most significant revelations of God in the Old Testament. 
Both Moses and Elijah have an experience on a mountain, if you know that. Moses receives the law of God on the, on the mountain. Elijah receives an encounter with God himself on a mountain. Moses probably rep represents, in some sense, all of the law. Everything that Moses has written in the first five, excuse me, five books of the Old Testament are really representative of God's movement to call his people out and to give them his law and his word and to make, call a people to himself. Elijah, somewhat maybe differently, stands as one of the greatest Old Testament prophets of the time, that he had a ministry, again, of calling the people back in their relationship to God. Some think Elijah may have something to do with the forerunner that foretells, as Malachi says, the great day of the Lord that will come. Significantly, in the book of Luke, that's how Luke has told us about Elijah's ministry. So now here comes the symbols of the Old Testament law and the symbols of the Old Testament prophets, and they're having a conversation with Jesus. They all seem to be talking, and what we're going to find out that helps us interpret really why these two are represented is what they're talking about. Look at verse 31 with me. These two, Moses and Elijah, they appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, if you have a note in your Bible, you probably have a note that says the word for departure is a Greek word that is literally written exodus. In the New Testament, this word is only used three times. Once in Hebrews to speak of the actual exodus. When Joseph talks to the Israelites and said, when God brings you up from here, take my bones with you. He knew that that was not going to be the place for God's people. He forecasted, he knew that the exodus would come at some time. The other place this word is used is used in the mouth of Peter. And Peter puts it like this over in 2 Peter 1. He says, I make every effort so that after my exodus, my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So while Joseph speak, in Hebrews speaks of the literal exodus that is to come, Peter speaks of his literal human death. Well, you put those two ideas together, and it seems that both Moses and Elijah are having a conversation about the new exodus that Jesus will accomplish and will accomplish through his death that happens in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a foreboding town at this point in the book of Luke. It's already been forecast as the place where the chief priest, the elders, and the scribes will take their stand against Jesus. It's kind of the locus, the heart of darkness in the book of Luke where Jesus will go into and will experience his rejection, suffering, and death. But what's interesting about this is as Jesus appears, as he's praying, and as Jesus appears in glory with Moses and Elijah, what is it that the Old Testament saints want to talk about? The Old Testament saints want to talk about what Jesus is doing. What is the talk of heaven? The talk of heaven is what Jesus has done. The talk of heaven, the interest of heaven, is to have conversations with Jesus about what he is about to go and do and accomplish. So these two individuals essentially are viewed in glory, Moses being at least 1,500 years dead, Elijah being at least 900 years dead, and what Moses and Elijah have on their minds and in their conversation with Jesus is Jesus' coming death, burial, and resurrection. All of what he will accomplish. Now, if you think about Moses and Elijah, just think with me about their ministries. Do you know how Moses ends his ministry? 
Moses fails to regard God as holy and he yells and kind of yells at the people and hits the rock and water comes out and God says you can't go into the promised land. And if you know anything about Moses at the end of his life, God takes Moses up on top of a mountain. And as he takes Moses up on top of a mountain, he says you can't go into the land that I'm promising to give to the Israelites, but you can see it. So Moses in his ministry life comes all the way up to the promised land, but he can't go in. Now, if you think about Elijah and his ministry life, Elijah has one of the most incredible prophetic ministries of your entire Bible. He goes toe-to-toe with the prophets of Baal, lightning, fire from heaven comes down, consume the altar, kills all the prophets of Baal. Elijah's on the run. Ahab and Jezebel are ready to kill him. Elijah really wrestles on the other side of this great victory on the mountain, and he goes in the strength of what God provides and through his kind of weariness to the mountain of God, and he has a conversation on the mountain of God. And as he stands there on the mountain of God, and you know the story, if you've read that passage, there's an earthquake and there's a fire and then just still small voice. And the still small voice counsels Elijah about what he's supposed to do with the remainder of his ministry. And if you know anything about Elijah, Elijah doesn't do what God says. He doesn't anoint the next king. He basically ends his ministry in failure, unable to see how it is that God is going to bring about the redemption of his people that he so longs to see. How is it that God is going to free his people from the idolatry that is just running rampant throughout the land? So both Moses and Elijah have ministries that essentially are cut short. They can't bring to completion the thing that they want to bring to completion. And here they are in glory talking with Jesus about the reality that Jesus is about to take a people and bring them to the the true promised land, bring them into presence with God forever. And Jesus is about to accomplish the thing that Elijah never could He could actually cleanse the hearts and minds of his people to establish a new covenant with them where his law is written on their hearts. So you've got to think that with Moses and Elijah listening to Jesus going, how are you, Jesus, how are we? We could never do it. We could never accomplish what we so longed for to accomplish. We could never get in. I couldn't go into the promised land. Elijah is just racked with difficulty in his heart when he talks to God in his ministry and he says, I have broken down these altars. I've killed the prophets of Baal. Nobody is faithful to you, God. I alone am left. And into this conversation in glory, here Jesus is talking about all of what he is about to accomplish. There are so many, I can't go into them this morning, you can read them and go through them yourself, but there's so many Old Testament references in this setting that speak to the Exodus, to Moses, to the prophets, to the Feast of Tabernacles, to all of the Old Testament anticipation that leans forward and looks into what Jesus is about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So here's Moses, and here's Elijah. And you can just, I mean, just imagine, would you want to be at this worship service? I mean, this is the the place that you want to be, right? And you almost expect Peter, James, and John just to be wrapped with attention. Hands raised on their knees, on their face, glorifying God, seeing a Moses and Elijah. Jesus is talking to him. He's unveiled in his glory. It's the most significant, supernatural, divine experience they've ever had. 
So let's see what they're doing. Verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. <sighs> Aren't you glad that the plan of God doesn't rest on the spiritual insight or even the consciousness of the disciples? Isn't that encouraging to you? You ever fall asleep praying? Don't lie. Right? You do that. I do that. Oh, God. Today was... <laughs> I, my wife goes, you're snoring again. Now, I don't know what we expect. Like, I don't know what you expected. I didn't expect this. We don't know what time it is. Maybe it's nighttime. Maybe Jesus likes to pray at night. That's the time when Moses and Elijah come out. I'm not sure. Maybe they're night owls. Maybe Jesus and I'm not sure. Maybe it's early in the morning. Who knows? Whatever it is. The disciples don't have a great track record when they pray with Jesus. They're going to be sleeping in Gethsemane as well. But here's the most significant supernatural revelation of God's divine disclosure of Jesus, the Old Testament prophetic word, and the Old Testament law. And the disciples are literally heavy with sleep, literally weighed down with sleep. You ever wake up in the morning and try to open your eyes? They're too heavy. That's the disciples right there. Just think about this. Here's the disciples trying to see the glory. Try, can't get there. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. Now, if you've got a cross reference, maybe you don't, but that's what John says. John says we, literally in John's gospel, he says we saw his glory. What a supernatural, visible experience for these men. When they came awake, fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with them. So as they come to, you ever get nervous and just start talking? You, you're like Peter then. Peter sees something so incredible, he doesn't know what to do, he just starts talking. Which is encouraging to me that sometimes when you wake up out of a dead sleep, when you're trying to pray, that you don't see things accurately. We don't see things the way we ought to see things, right? When you're sleeping, you don't have a good sense of what's going on around you, and neither did Peter. Well, Peter scrubs the sleep from his eyes in verse 33. It seems they... Uh, see Christ's glory on the tail end of this conversation or, or as they wake up they start to hear of the exodus that Jesus is about to accomplish. Verse 33 and the men were parting from him and as the men were parting from him Peter said to Jesus here we go Pete come on Peter something good master it's good that we are here. Let me give you something that has nothing to do let me finish the verse for let me hold on hang on it's going to matter in a minute. Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Here's Peter's application of the glorious experience he just had. Let's keep it going. And wouldn't that be ours? If you were on the mountain talking to Moses, who's been dead 1,500 years, Elijah shows up, he's been dead 900 years, and here's Jesus talking to them, wouldn't you want to pull up a chair, take some notes? I would. I'd want to know more about this conversation. I'd want more insight. Moses, what have you been doing for 1,500 years on the other side? What's been going on? 
What is it like to be in glory? I have all sorts of questions. And you've got to get the sense here that Peter very simply wants the glory to continue. Do you have moments in your life that you look back to where you felt like God was doing stuff? Where you had such a sense of his purpose, his design, where the mercy and the grace of God washed over your soul, where you were growing like crazy in your Christian life? That you, in a sense, have had mountaintop experiences where you've known and experienced God's love in maybe ways that you never have before. Anybody? You remember those days? And I think for many of us, we have these mountaintop experiences and we want nothing more than to hang on to them, don't we? We want that sense, and I think for any of us in this room, the, the right and good desire in our hearts is for one day to see Christ as he is. Amen? I want to see him as he actually is. And I think we can empathize with Peter in his suggestion to start building tents on the mountain. There's another kind of Old Testament shadow here. If you know anything about the Old Testament Feast of Tabernacles that would be celebrated by the Jews, they would spend time living in tents as commemorating their time walking with God in the wilderness and living in tents. So there may even be a shadow here of Peter thinking, this is the most appropriate thing that I can think to do, is to continue to spend time with God as the people of Israel spent time with God in the wilderness. But Luke gives us an interpretation of what Peter says. And it's helpful for us to interpret this, and I'll tell you why with an incredible illustration coming up next. Look at what he says at the end. Luke tells us that Peter doesn't know what he's saying. This has nothing to do with the sermon, but it's hilarious, and it's a part of my life, and I have to preach it, and I have to tell you this story, because it came from this passage. Now, we got a dishwasher, and we needed a dishwasher that could handle the dishes of six children. So we went to Home Depot and we had a conversation with the guy. He said, how often do you dish, do dishes? And we go, I don't know, hourly? That's his our thing. It's like <laughs> constantly running, you know, all the time. So he goes, this is the one that you want. I said, okay, great. Let's buy it. Let's get it. And I'm going to even, I've put in a dishwasher before. I shocked myself twice. I don't like doing it. I can do it. I'm not even saying I'm good at it. I'm just saying I can put one in. But I decided to splurge. And I said, I'm not going to do it you're going to do it. So they sent a guy who was also an electrician to my house. And as we start talking, as we do with anybody who kind of puts in appliances, I kind of just do a quick 10-second prayer. God, whatever you want to happen in this conversation with the individual who comes to my house, I may never see him again, help us have an opportunity to talk about you or talk about who we are or what we do. And inevitably, we start chatting. I think Suzanne was talking with him. And he was talking to, uh, somehow it came up that I was a pastor. And it turns out that he also, he didn't call himself a pastor, he also called himself a minister. So he was a minister of some kind and talked about, well, I'm you know, pouring into this young guy who's with me on this crew and we put in these, these um, dishwashers. So we talked back and forth, very great conversation, just, you know, just kind of fun talking about life and what he, where he is and how he got there and what he's doing and how we got to Charleston. And we'd been in Charleston for, I don't know, eight, nine years at that point. 
uh, and kind of just telling them, hey, here's the story of how God brought us here. I went to seminary in Dallas, and God brought us here and put us in Charleston. And man, just, you know, just kind of telling the story with another brother in Christ. And this guy ends our conversation as he's getting ready to leave my house. And he ends the conversation by quoting Luke 9, verse 33. And he says, just like God said on the mountain, it's good to be here. And he was trying to apply that to me and Suzanne being in Charleston. And I thought to myself later, he just quoted Peter's bozo comment on Jesus on the transfiguration. And Luke himself said that Peter didn't know what he was talking about. So I thought, I can't wait for when I preach Luke 9 verse 33. Because I am going to tell our church that that is not the way you apply the Bible. It's not an accurate application of that verse for my life. Peter's bozo application of Jesus being transfigured on the mountain. Amen? So what did I do when a brother in Christ quoted me a verse he shouldn't have quoted me about my life? I said, thank you very much. I'll take what Luke has to say about 933. And we keep going in our life. Now, what did that have to do with the message? Nothing. What we know is that Peter, James, and John are given the most significantly, significant heavenly divine revelation ever. And they interpret it wrong. They, they don't see and they don't apply the truth of their visible experience. Amen? I think that's fair. They're looking at what's happening in front of them, scrubbing the sleep out of their eyes, trying to make sense of it, decided we should build tents. Luke says, they don't know what they're talking about. And now you have a divine censure. You have a divine mute button on Peter. And watch how God presses the mute button on Peter. From this point on in the text, everything shifts because after this point in the text, you can no longer see. Up to this point, there's been a mixture of terms. You see his appearance. You see his clothes. You see his glory. You see Moses. You see Elijah. Peter starts talking. God hits the mute button, and you can't see anything anymore. Watch. Verse 34. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Here's an Old Testament shadow of itself. When the glory of God comes down over the tabernacle, nobody can go in. When Moses would go and talk face to face with God, the glory cloud would come down and nobody could go in. When they finished getting the temple set up in Solomon's day, the glory of God comes down on the temple and nobody could go in. So here are Peter, James, and John, and Jesus in the cloud and they can't see anything. Amen? When the cloud comes down, we have no use of our visible uh, machine. I don't Visible, thank you. Our visible eyes. You get what I'm saying. This cloud comes down and overshadows them, and they're afraid as they enter a cloud. A similar experience of the nation of Israel when the glory of God comes down onto Mount Sinai. The people of Israel are terrified that it's God on the mountain talking to Moses. So, <clears throat> why does God do this? Why does it happen here? 
What lesson, what application ought we to take from Jesus talking to the prototype of the law and the prototype of the prophets? What should the disciples learn from the transfiguration and visibly seeing the glory of Jesus, Elijah, and Moses? Verse 35 is your answer. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, and what the voice from heaven says at this point is essentially three things that all hammer home the reality of Jesus' identity again. Now why is that so important to our discipleship? Why is it that heaven, Herod, the crowds didn't get it, Herod didn't get it, Peter kind of got it, Jesus understood it, but now the voice from heaven is going to speak to the disciples. The voice from heaven isn't going to speak to Jesus like it did at the, at the baptism. The voice from heaven is going to talk to the disciples. And the voice from heaven is going to confirm three big ideas about Jesus' identity again. Because the disciples don't have a tendency to embrace the identity as Jesus has shared it with them. Which means God takes a moment to validate Jesus Christ from heaven itself. We could have believed Jesus because of his miracles. We could have believed Jesus because of his preaching. We could have believed Jesus because he called himself the son of man. But it's hard to believe Jesus when he says suffering is coming. It's hard to believe Jesus when we are called to take up our cross and follow him, right? And what God gives the disciples here is a validation of heaven's perspective on who this person is. Look at what he says. A voice came out from the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Number one, my son. Uh, Psalm 2 speaks of the uh, son as uh, receiving a kingdom from his father. It's an Old Testament messianic prophecy. We've even seen the reality of Jesus being the son all the way back in uh, Gabriel's prophecy to Mary. You see Jesus' identity being challenged by Satan in the wilderness. You remember that? If you are God's son, tell these stones to become bread. And now as Jesus starts to share the inevitability of the plan, the certainty of his coming crucifixion, the certainty of of the call that he's going to put on their lives, to take up their cross, to follow after him, to deny themselves. What the disciples have is a validation of what Jesus has been saying up to this point and a confirmation that Jesus is who he says he is. Do you think if you were a disciple that you would struggle with the fact that Jesus is the son of God as you watched him tortured, as you watched him rejected, as you watched him on the cross? In fact, what happens in Luke after his resurrection, Jesus comes back and he talks to them and he talks to them and interprets to them in the law of Moses and in the prophets everything concerning himself. And here is our first echo of the fact that the Old Testament points to Jesus being the Son of God. The Old Testament is looking for the one who will fulfill the law of Moses. The Old Testament is looking for the one who will fulfill bringing God's people to himself. And when the voice from heaven says, this is my son, Jesus has just called himself the son of man and infused that term not only with glory but also with difficulty and heaven itself says amen. Number two, he calls him the chosen one. 
Now the chosen one is a, is a fulfillment of Isaiah 42. I'll just read it to you. You don't need to turn there. Isaiah 42 says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He's God's elect one. He's the one on whom the spirit rests. He's the fulfillment of what Jesus started with in his ministry in Isaiah. And now heaven itself, it doesn't come from the mouth of Jesus saying, and this, today has this scripture been fulfilled in your presence, but it says to Peter and to James and to John, he is my elect one, he is my chosen one, he is my son. Now number three is a, is an identity that you don't exactly get because it comes in the form of a command. But it's a fulfillment of a verse in Deuteronomy 18 referring to the ministry of Moses himself. Where in Deuteronomy 18, God tells Moses that God will raise up a prophet like him. And the command that God gives about that prophet in Deuteronomy 18 is that the people should listen to him. And in the only imperative command we have in this entire passage, we get heaven's true application of the glory that they've seen. Because Peter's application of the glory is hang out with the glory. Peter's application is we should extend this worship service. But that hasn't been Luke's point. It hasn't been Jesus' teaching point. In fact, if you go back into Luke chapter 8, you remember the parable of the soils, the most significant parable Jesus says? The one who hears the word and holds it fast is the one who will produce fruit? What has been the point of what we've been learning about discipleship? The point that Jesus has been trying to get across in the lives of the disciples is to believe what he says. Is to believe that Jesus understands who he is. Jesus understands why he's come to preach the kingdom of God. Jesus understands that he's come to save sinners. And now heaven itself opens up affirming his deity. Affirming that he is the chosen one of God. And the application of heaven when Jesus is on the scene is to listen. Is to pay attention to what Jesus has to say. Because Jesus' word is the thing that will carry the disciples into their own eventual martyrdom and death. Their experience and embracing of Jesus as truly who he is and at the same time embracing the plan of Jesus that includes rejection, suffering, torture, crucifixion, death, and resurrection is a key part of what it means to be a disciple, right? It's a key part for how we understand our own discipleship experience. How often we need to return to the reality of Jesus and his identity. How often we have to return to the reality that suffering is a part of our discipleship. And then in fact to follow Jesus appropriately is to take Jesus and what he says and to open our ears to the good shepherd. Right? The sheep follow the good shepherd not because they can see him but because they, they hear him. They hear his voice. So heaven's application to the transfiguration is not to see the glory, not to maintain the glory, not to embrace the glory, not to extend the glory, but to listen to the word. To listen to what Jesus has to say.
See, the emphasis on their visible experience fades because only God can rightly interpret their visible experience, right? Peter can't do it. Nobody in this text understands what's going on except Jesus in heaven. So for God to emphasize their listening is to take their subjective experience and make it second to the things that they hear, not the things that they see. Verse 36, when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. One commentator said the, the miracle is not the transfiguration being uh, Jesus being seen for who he is. The miracle is that Jesus kept it veiled throughout the course of his ministry. How often Jesus could have simply unveiled who he is and he refused to. He continued to look like a man. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. I mean, what would they tell people? We saw Jesus on the mountain. What was it like? You had to be there. This is the ultimate you had to be there moment, isn't it? What'd you see? His clothes were like lightning. Well, I can see his clothes now. They don't look that like. Yeah, his face was transfigured. His face looks fine. Not that good looking. What's the problem? Also, Moses and Elijah were there. How'd you know it was Moses and Elijah? I don't know. I just knew. Haven't they been dead? Yeah, they've been dead a long time. I mean, imagine trying to, to explain this experience to people. We have it in written form here. But imagine coming down from the mountaintop experience, knowing and experiencing all of what you've done, and then telling, trying to communicate that to people. I saw Jesus transfigured talking with Moses and Elijah. Also, there was a cloud up there, and God spoke to us. Be like, right, let's where you go in the cult section. So even reading this, I, I think there's something more here for the disciples than simply seeing Jesus. They never see this again. It's a one-time experience. It never shows up in Jesus' ministry with the disciples again. The only time we get anything close to this is John at the end of his life in the book of Revelation. So why is this singular, primarily subjective experience of three men recorded for us in the scriptures. And I think the reason it's there is that, you know, we all, like I said, look, we, we all would love to be there, wouldn't we? I think we would all have wanted to be on the mountain. I think in large part the hunger for the Christian, the hunger for people who seek God is to have some kind of glorious experience that is repeatable, is replicable. And I think if we zoom out from an experience like this, this is it a primarily subjective experience, it helps us interpret some of our own experiences. When we walk with God and experience God in new ways in our lives and begin to understand who he is and see him in seasons with great difficulty and understanding and trying to take up our cross and follow him is that inevitably we're going to have to interpret our experiences not by our own eyes but by our own ears. The Christian is constantly called to interpret their experiences through the word, through what Jesus has said, not through what their eyes see. And just like the man who decided to share Luke 9.33 with me in my kitchen, 
his interpretation of my life and what was going on was wrong because he didn't understand the word. So the thing that helps us in a passage like this really to, to apply it is something that Peter says in his own epistle. If you'd move out of Luke with me, and we'll just close our time looking at something here from 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, all the way to your right, Hebrews, 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. I quoted this verse to you, 2 Peter 1, when we started. In 2 Peter 1.15, where Peter says, I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to see at any time to recall these things. And Peter is talking about his own death, as, as Luke is talking about Jesus' own death. But Peter interprets the transfiguration experience for us. He helps us to see something and to learn something from the transfiguration that Peter has learned. And he wants the disciples to learn. If you know anything about 2 Peter, 2 Peter has a, is written to a people who are struggling with God's timing. And they're struggling with the timing of God's second coming. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 3, it says, there are scoffers who will come saying that where is the promise of his coming? For ever since our fathers, everything has continued as it is. We don't see any intervention of God. We don't see God doing anything. We don't see any glory. We don't see anything happening. And Peter writes, after experiencing the transfiguration, to help us understand how we ought to apply it, because he wants to apply it in 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 1, chapter 1, verse 16. For we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's he talking about? He's talking about the second coming. See, disciples don't see the glory of Jesus again. What do they have to do? They have to preach Christ crucified, dead, and risen. Why? Because they know he's coming. And he's, Peter's saying, we didn't follow made-up stories of resurrection. We didn't follow make-up myths of the fact that Jesus will return and will display himself in his power one day. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received glory, I'm sorry, honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And some commentators, when they get to a passage like this, and in fact, when they read the transfiguration, they say, they look at the Old Testament reality of everything Moses had said, and they look at the fulfillment of everything that Elijah experienced, and they come and they rest on the unity between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And they say, aha, the Old Testament objective word is validated by Peter's experience because Peter sees it. And for many of us, we, we read God's word and we want to know God and we want to have an experience with him and we want our experiences to validate the things that we see. But that's not what Peter says. Peter says, yes, I was an eyewitness of his glory. I did see him on the mountain. I heard the majestic glory of the Father in heaven confirm who Christ was. And literally, the next verse goes like this. And we have more sure the prophetic word. Peter just said, though I saw him on the mountain, you don't need to take my subjective experience for it because we have something more certain to base your life upon. We have the prophetic word. So if you experience this week 
the tension between what you read in the word and what you see in your life, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to doubt your eyes. You're supposed to open your ears and believe the word of Christ. Now, is that important for discipleship? If you're discipling somebody this week and they go, can you believe what's happening in my life? Everything's a mess and I lost my job and this isn't working and my marriage and these kids and I don't know what's going on. What are you going to do? Brother, sister, I know that experience is hard. Let's come back to the thing that we have more certainty and more confidence in than your current personal spiritual experience. Let's come back to what does God have to say? So why is that so important for our discipleship? Because listen, let me apply this to the church at large. You can't build a church on subjective experiences. You know why? Because your experience isn't my experience. Chris, your experience with Christ hasn't been my experience with Christ. Sean, yours hasn't been like mine has. What are we going to do? I don't know what it's like to walk with God in Sean's shoes. I don't know what it's like to walk with God in Chris's shoes. How in the world are we going to have unity in the church? How in the world are we going to have unity in a body if our experiences and subjective experiences of God through season? Listen, I've never birthed a baby. How in the world are we going to have unity in the body of Christ between men and women who are brothers and sisters in Christ if I've never had that unique subjective experience? Because we have something more sure. We have something more certain. We have something that we can return to as disciples of Jesus Christ that we can build our lives on, not subjective experiences, but his objective word. So what's the application of the transfiguration? Listen to Jesus. Disciples, listen to Jesus. Doubt what your eyes see, open your ears, and listen to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pause as we prepare our hearts for communion. We pause and confess that so often we are prone to wander because of what we see. And Father, would you give us the courage and the confidence from a passage like the Transfiguration to obey the heavenly voice of majestic glory that confirms the identity of Jesus Christ and commands us to listen. Would we submit our feelings and our desires and our ambitions to your word? Would this church be built up by men and women drawn together in unity around the person and the work of Jesus Christ? Would your word saturate our conversations and our hearts in such a way that we would be able to disciple this next generation to say, doubt what you see, but listen to him. Father, in our homes as we disciple our kids, in our marriages as we counsel one another, in the relationships with friends and coworkers and classmates that we have, that we would be a people characterized as disciples who listen to Jesus. It's in Christ's name. Amen.